You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, a lot of relief for NASA after 10 years and two and a half billion dollars, we're back on the red planet. That's right, and this is the largest piece of equipment that we've sent up to Mars. Yes, some people have called this the most important mission of the decade, and I assume they mean science mission. Mind you, that was by somebody at NASA. But nonetheless, this is a very, very big story. And I think almost anyone on the planet who has any way of receiving news knows that we're on Mars again. But it raises a lot of questions. Uh, what are we doing on Mars with this new rover? And what will we learn? And by the way, did you know about the project called Mars One, which is intending to send colonists to Mars with a one-way ticket? So you can't come back. Well, you'd have to buy a return ticket, but you can't. <laughs> Well, there's a lot of questions, so we should get to it. Yes. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. This is a Martian curiosity, and this is John Grotzinger. Yeah, I'm John Grotzinger, a professor of geology at Caltech and the project scientist for Mars Science Laboratory. Mars Science Laboratory, or MSL, or Curiosity, which is the name given to the rover by a sixth grader. John, Curiosity has landed in the Gale Crater, but there are a lot of craters on Mars. Why the Gale Crater? <laughs> Well, the Gale Crater is a, is a really special one for us because it's the result of about six years of deliberation between many, many landing sites, and the one that we wound up with looks really terrific. Tell me, what, what is it about Gale Crater? Did you just like the aesthetics? Was there something about the location, something about the crater? Yeah, there's a couple things about Gale Crater. If you sort of zoom out to the 30,000-foot uh, level, it's one of the lowest features on Mars. It's a big Noachian Age crater and it sits right on a feature that represents a transition from highlands to lowlands of Mars, and it's even deeper than the floor of Valles Marineris. And if you don't know anything else about the story of water, water tends to flow downhill, and, and that's, that was one of the initially attractive things about Gale. And in addition to that, it also has a mountain in the center of it that rises about five kilometers high, featuring a very, very thick succession of sedimentary rocks that have sulfate minerals in them, clay minerals in them. We see hematite. It just looks like an exciting diversity of materials for us to study. What's the rover going to do? Is it going to head for the mountains? Well, the amazing thing about it is, is that when we were selecting this landing site, it belonged to a category that we called go-to, which means that where you land is not the prime science target, but you accept it because it's a smooth, flat place for EDL, entry, descent, and landing, and then you do something there and you head on out. Except uh, when you head on out, it means you have to drive 10 kilometers or more. So we needed contingency, which would mean that if something happened to the rover and we could never leave the ellipse, we had something to do there. And we noticed from orbit that there was an alluvial fan, and that alluvial fan was aimed right towards the base of Mount Sharp. And as it happens, our landing ellipse moved right over the base of the alluvial fan. And so right from the, from the get-go... We, we think that we're going to be exploring an area that may have received water that came off of this alluvial fan. Now, when you say alluvial fan, that sounds like somebody who's really into alluvials. But what you mean by that is someplace where maybe water had washed some rocks down into the, the floor of the crater? Yeah, that's right. If you, if you think of the terrain uh, from the western U.S. Out in, the, out in the Mojave Desert, you see ranges of mountains. And the water that flowed through those mountains causes erosion and it transports bits of rock and soil. And then they get spread out at the base of the mountain, and the flows of water just kind of spread out and develop this cone-shaped deposit, and, and we seem to have landed right at the base of one of those. So 
you want to head out eventually from this alluvial fan landing spot and head for Mount Sharp. Now, the idea here is that you're going from, as it were, ancient Mars history up to more recent Mars history. You're going to get maybe a hydrological history of the red planet. Is, is that the goal? Yeah, I, I really think you just hit the nail on the head right there. We, we have very specific goals and objectives for the instruments, but if you want to put them into some overarching concept, that's it. And basically what we're able to do is from about the last decade of exploring Mars, both with rovers and orbiters, we have a paradigm now which suggests that the earliest, the very earliest history of the planet had an aqueous history that produced clay minerals. And then as Mars evolved, it went into a phase where it seems to have produced sulfate minerals. And then in its very youngest stages, it went into a time when it just seemed to produce sort of anhydrous iron-bearing minerals. And what's cool about this is that in this five-kilometer-thick mountainous stack of layers, we go from the bottom where there's clays up through sulfates and then up into the anhydrous stuff. And so what we may wind up doing is exploring what you can call, you know, the great desiccation event of Mars or the great drying out. This is a question that people have been asking now for decades. What happened to Mars? Why did it go from being a wet planet to a dry planet? And the problem is, is that if you land a rover in one place and you don't have this continuous record, you get an observation, you can make a measurement, and then you can guess what happened after that. But what we're going to be able to do this time with some luck is to go progressively from one of these phases to the next and see in that transition if we don't get insight into why that event may have happened. It sounds to me like uh, Mars's best days might have been, well, well behind it. I mean, in the sense that if there were lakes and oceans on Mars, that that was a long time ago, maybe three, four billion years ago. Those are the layers you're going to hit first. Is it going to be all over but the shouting within the first six months? Well, you know, that's the that's the terrific thing about the way that this site presented itself. And I have to say, it's it was very compelling for those of us that were involved in the in the final selection because where the rover begins its mission is in the landing lips and, and there's this whole alluvial fan system that we're gonna check out. But then when we get to the base, we're basically starting with the oldest stuff and working through to the youngest stuff. And so we mitigate the risk of the rover, touch wood, failing for some reason because we've explored maybe the most prospective materials early on in the mission, saving the things for the drier periods of Mars for later on in the mission. So it's eat dessert first. Life is short. Or could be, or could be short in this case. Yeah, that's right. Okay, this mission has been called by NASA's top scientists the most important mission of the decade. Now, you might not be unbiased, but the decade has just begun. How does Curiosity earn this distinction? Well, I think it does that, and this may seem a bit corny, but it's absolutely true. It does that by standing on the shoulders of the giants that came before it. And Curiosity, in one sense, is the latest and greatest rover that NASA has produced. But it's a combination of complex, sophisticated instruments that has been sent to a field site that was chosen based on the local attributes of the geology, but also our conceptual understanding of how Mars as a planet has evolved. And that comes from all the missions before it. So in one sense, we're taking the next step. Of course, we're doing it with a novel set of instruments and and new capabilities. John Grotzinger, thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks very much for having me. John Grotzinger is a geologist at the California Institute of Technology, and he is the project scientist for NASA's Mars Science Laboratory mission. Well, for Curiosity to land in the Gale Crater, it had to land, period. And that meant it had to survive the landing. And there were many people who were watching this event. Uh, Now, Seth, you watched the landing of Curiosity. Now, you were not down in Pasadena at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where John Grotzinger and the other engineers were wearing the blue shirts. Yes. No, but I was watching the landing. However, I was watching it on giant video projection screens at NASA Ames Research Center here in Northern California, along with 5,000 other people camped out on blankets and folding chairs on the grass there, all watching this really exciting event. Okay, but they weren't wearing the blue shirts that the NASA engineers Probably were wearing. Probably some of them were, but it was dark, so. Okay. End of range control, air used, minus one point. Now, one of the most gripping parts of this evening was the descent known as the seven minutes of terror. 
Okay. Now, all these voices that we hear, this is Mission Control at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. Yes. These are the guys who are, you know, monitoring all the various systems, the telemetry, which is to say the data coming back from the spacecraft. It's the kind of scene we've witnessed ever since the days of Apollo, a room full of people sitting behind computer screens. Okay, so he just said that the rover is decelerating. It was decelerating at that point. Yeah, it's coming in at about 13,000 miles per hour, which is like, I don't know, five miles per second. It's the escape speed from Mars. Okay, so Mars is pulling it in really fast, and you have to slow it down. The first thing that slows it down is this point where it's just beginning to hit the atmosphere, which causes a bit of friction, so it slows down for a while just because of that. We're going about Mach 2.4 at an altitude of 17. It says it slows down to Mach 2. Mach is the speed of sound in the atmosphere, so never mind that. It goes from 13,000 miles per hour down to 8,000 miles per hour thanks to hitting the atmosphere and then having this giant 50-foot parachute come out behind it. Parachute foot. Okay, and then the moment it actually landed, what happened at that moment? Well, the crowd went wild, of course, and well, they should have. And not just the crowd down at JPL. Where I was here in Northern California, people just went nuts. Sounds like a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun, uh, even though I wasn't really on Mars itself. But one of the handful of people who have some sense of what it would be like to be joining that rover staring out across the Martian landscape is Jennifer Heldman, who has traveled to Mars analog sites on Earth to study environments that are similar to those that you would find on the Red Planet. She's an astrobiologist, but it's not only astrobiologists who make up the Mars science community. Because to tackle a big question like, could there have been life on Mars, you need a lot of different people that know a lot of different things. So you need chemists, and you need biologists, and you need geologists, and you need physics people, and all of this to try and answer these big questions. And for those scientists, and it's a worldwide collection of experts, I might add, the seven minutes of terror are over. The NASA high fives have dwindled to, I don't know, one or two an hour. Now, And now, now that we're on Mars, that's when our job as scientists start, because now we're looking at the data that comes back. There's 10 science instruments on there, and Curiosity will be making all sorts of measurements. But those measurements are no good if we don't know what they mean or what understand what Mars is trying to tell us. And we look at that data. We look at the numbers and the squiggly lines that the instruments will send back, and we make sense of it. And we're going to make sense of it and try and determine, you know, could life have ever existed in Gale Crater, where Curiosity is sitting right now? Well, it's nice to hear a scientist refer to those lines as squiggly lines. So that must be the technical term. Yes, exactly. That That's squiggly lines and random numbers. That's right. Well, Jennifer, I was looking at a picture of you in a space suit. And you were standing on an alien land, and I'm pretty sure it wasn't Mars, and it wasn't even the moon. Where were you? That could have been a number of places. I've worn spacesuits in a variety of different places, all on Earth, I might add, um, because we do a lot of work here on Earth to study and learn how to go and operate on other planets. So, for example, I would love, 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 love to send people to Mars so that we can go explore that planet. It's really hard to do that, though. And we have to learn, you know, how do you live on Mars? How do you work on Mars? How do you talk to people back on Earth from Mars? And so to answer those really important questions, uh, we go out and we test it. And we go to places on Earth that are like Mars. Uh, Mars is really, really cold. Mars is really, really dry. And so we go to cold and dry places. So one of those pictures might have been from Antarctica. That was one of the most recent places that I've been. Uh, There are special places in Antarctica called the dry valleys, which actually don't have ice on them. Most of Antarctica is covered in ice, but the dry valleys aren't. And they're very cold and they're very dry, and they're the most Mars-like places on Earth. We we consider them Mars analogs on Earth, and Antarctica, as you said, is, is one of them. But there are a number of them. What are the others? Yes. Uh, some of the others that I've been to, I've been to the Atacama Desert. Uh, that's down in South America. Extremely dry, dry desert, the driest on Earth. And so we're looking to see what kind of microbes can live in that really, really dry environment. Uh, because we want to see, well, if microbes can live in really, really dry places here on Earth, can they live in really, really dry places on Mars? The Atacama Desert's one. Um, out in the desert, southwest deserts of the U.S. I've gone out to Utah, where we have a Mars Desert Research Station out there. So we can go out and test spacesuits and test rovers and test science. Can you share with us a story of what it's like to walk around in, in some of these environments with a spacesuit on? Anything that surprised you? Yeah, so there was one time out in Utah, we were at the Mars Desert Research Station, wearing a spacesuit, and we had a camera crew with us because 
um, there was a group doing a documentary about Mars analogs and working out in Mars. So we said, sure, come with us. We're going to go do an EVA, an extravehicular activity, which means we're going to wear our spacesuits and walk around and we're going to collect some rocks and get some samples. Great. Come out with us. So we had little sample bags and we had them in our backpacks and we had our spacesuits on and we'd get to the rock outcrop. And we pick up the rocks. Like, These are great. These are just what we've been looking for. We're all excited. And then we go to put the samples in the bag and we couldn't get the bags open. Because we're wearing these big, thick gloves. You don't think about this ahead of time. You know, you just think, oh, I'll open the bag and I'll put the rock in. How hard is that? It's really hard when you have a spacesuit on. Well, were they like a Ziploc bag or, or nylon mesh? Yeah. little Velcro or what was it? Yeah, it was like a, a Ziploc type of thing. You just had to pull it apart. Really simple. We do it every day in the kitchen, right? But with those big, thick gloves on, we could not get our sample bags open. And it was very embarrassing to have a film crew watching you for hours <laughs> try to open a Ziploc bag. And we couldn't just, you know, it would have been really simple to just take the glove off and just open the bag. But on Mars, you can't do that. And it would be a, a bummer to go to Mars and find great rocks and then not put them into a bag to bring them back. Exactly. <laughs> so that's just one one of those little lessons learned. You said that you went to Antarctica, where it's very dry and very cold, but you also said you went to the desert in Chile, where it's very dry, but I would assume also very warm. And so which is it for Mars? I mean, it is the red planet, you know, just with its name, we, it suggests that it is very hot, but is it hot or is it cold? Right. Mars is actually very cold. Uh, its average temperature is about minus 60 degrees, so it's actually a very cold planet. And when we go to these analog environments on Earth, there's no one place that's exactly like Mars, because that's only Mars. So when we go to these analogs, we are we have to pick and choose which of the conditions mimic Mars. So in the Antarctica case, you get both the cold and the dry. In the Atacama case, you get the very dry. And that's still very valuable because you can still look at what are the dry limits of life is the question that we're looking at there. We're also looking at water flows in these very dry environments. So we are studying some mud flows in the Atacama, which is very, very rare. Um, but we actually saw the same thing on Mars. Huh, well, how, how did that happen on Mars? Well, let's go figure out how it happened in the Atacama on Earth, where I can go and I can hike up to it and I can take samples and I can look at it with my own two eyes um, and then apply that to Mars where we have satellite images and try and figure out what's going on. So now Curiosity is um, sitting on the red planet and you uh, are one of the few people that can understand what the terrain is like for this rover. How would you describe what Curiosity sees in front of it, having been to analogs on Earth? What is Mars like? I think from the analog experiences here on Earth, it's very desolate. There are no trees. There are no shrubs. There are no bugs. There are no animals walking around. Um, and it's very calm and peaceful. Now, when we go to these analog places, it's so quiet. There's no cars driving by. There are no planes flying overhead. Uh, you know, there's no hustle and bustle of the daily life. It's just calm and quiet, and it's just you and the landscape. And so I think that's sort of that peaceful quality that Curiosity is dealing with now. And we're getting some pictures back, and you can see the big mountain that it's about to climb. So it's about to go hiking up this big mountain, and it's going to be spectacular. Now, when you saw those first pictures um, that came from Curiosity, and there was there was a desert, and there was the mountain, and there was this reddish hue, what was the first place on Earth that you thought of? Um, I thought of the Atacama. You yeah. did? Yep, the I thought of the Atacama Desert because the colors are the same. The rock distributions look the same. There's mountains in the distance. Um, and so it looked very much like the Atacama, some dust blowing around, uh, very desolate. And so that was my first thought. Jennifer Heldman, thank you so much for talking to us. Sure. Thanks for having me. Jennifer Heldman is a research scientist at NASA Ames Research Center. Seth could you put on those oven mitts that I set down in front of you, please? Why? Are we getting some pizza out of the oven? What's the deal here? Why do I need oven mitts? <laughs> okay. So you see what else I put down there in front of you? Yeah, this giant Ziploc bag, yeah, actually. Yeah, this may be the largest Ziploc bag I've ever seen. It's almost a body bag size. Yeah, I was going to say, you order this from Mafia Supply Company? Okay. And <laughs> yeah, what do you yeah, want me to do with this Mafia? That's not fair to the Mafia. Or it's, it's closed right yeah. now. Jennifer was trying to open a, a Ziploc bag, she said, while she was in the desert, and she wasn't able to do it for the cameras. Yes, what I is. want you to do is try to open it and describe what you're doing. Now, you have on oven mitts. Well, actually, it isn't too hard to open this, if you want to know the truth, because I can just pull on. It's so big that even with oven mitts, watch. Oops. Maybe it's not so easy. Hold it. Mm. Come on, Seth. Well, the, I can't the do The Martian it. rocks are waiting oh. for you. <laughs> well, those Martian rocks are safe from me, 
because I cannot get this bag open. Uh, I'm sorry, Molly. This is not okay. Jennifer not faking is this. this. is Jennifer for real. Is vindicated. Yeah. <laughs> Can I take the mitts off now? I think you have to. Well, the the, the gloves are off now. The mitts are off. Yes. <laughs> now let's find out just what this Martian rover can do. What will it be looking for on Mars? What might that say about life elsewhere? It's a Martian curiosity. I'm big picture science. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Now that we know where the rover Curiosity is and what the terrain is like, we can consider its mission, which is to hunt for the building blocks of life. And we'll hear about that a little bit later in the show. But first, let's consider this. Why do we keep looking for life on Mars? Why is it everyone's favorite inhabited planet? Well, I wanted to talk to a Mars scientist about the history of Mars in our imagination, but they're all busy with the Curiosity mission. But this guy was free. My name is Seth Shostak, and I'm senior astronomer at the SETI Institute. <laughs> okay. Well, there is a lot of interest in the red planet, and there has been since ancient times. Why did it stand out? Well, one thing that Mars did that the other planets didn't do, or at least not in a way you could see with your naked eye, was it would change its direction across the sky. It would move first one way and then back up and then go back again. And this was considered aggressive, erratic behavior. Is this what's known as Mars in retrograde? Right, exactly what it is, retrograde motion. And it's only because Mars is the next planet out from the sun, then, then Earth. Was anyone talking about the possibility of life on Mars at this point? No, that had to await the invention of the telescope. And once it was invented in 1609, Galileo turns a telescope in the direction of the sky. Then they began to actually observe Mars. And, and over the course of the next 50, 100 years, some rather famous astronomers were looking at Mars, and they could see there were markings on it which allowed them to uh, to see how fast Mars spun, you know, like a, watching a, a merry-go-round. They'd see these dark features come back. It was about a day. And, and then they noticed that it had these polar ice caps. It was beginning to look like Earth, and that was very suggestive. They began to think, maybe there's life on this planet. Well, then in, in the late 18th century, in the early 19th century, a uh, British astronomer named William Herschel made a pretty extraordinary claim. He did that in the 1780s. He went in front of the Royal Society, and he said, you know what? Mars's day is about the same as the Earth. Its, its poles are tilted with respect to the ecliptic by about the same amount, which means it has seasons. They said, you know, if they're Martians up there, they probably enjoy a climate like our own. He was talking about Martians in front of this august British society. Now, his speculation was about Martians, which is pretty incredible. But then along comes an Italian who makes another speculation that was pretty wild, too. Uh, wilder, yeah. Giovanni Scaparelli, director of the Milan Observatory, 1877. He's got an 8-inch telescope, 8-inch refractor telescope. He looks at Mars for a long time, and he sees what he calls canali. Canali. Now, I don't think he meant canals. In, in the sense that we think of canals. That's the English translation of the word. He just meant some sort of ditches, gullies, something, okay? But, man, this set up a firestorm. Because it suggests that some someone had to make them. Yes. If they were canals that, you know, were deliberately dug, yeah, somebody had to do that, and we weren't doing it. So it had to be Martians. And, you know, his his idea here was picked up by several people, but most importantly, it was picked up by the American astronomer Percival Lowell, who, till the end of his life in 1916, was publishing books, giving lectures, and talking to anyone who would listen about the canals on Mars. Okay, well, when did these assumptions get cleared up and bring us to where we are now, understanding that Mars was once watery, it is not now? We know that there are no Martians that run around with spades on, on the planet. Uh, we don't know whether or not there's life there. There may be life there. or may have been life there. What did it take to go from Percival Lowell to where we are today? Spacecraft. That's what it took. We were trying to launch spacecraft to Mars in the early 1960s. Uh, Mariner 3, Mariner 4 launched toward Mars. Mariner 3 didn't make it, but Mariner 4 did, and it sent back these little postage stamp size photos, black and white photos of Mars 
but up close of Mars, and you could see craters and a desert. And, and you know, suddenly everybody realized there, there are no canals on Mars. There are no big Martians with shovel-ready projects on Mars. Mars was a hostile-looking place, and our ideas about the planet changed. But not so hostile that it would prohibit life there. That's right. We now think that, okay, it may be a tough environment, but maybe not an impossible one. Well, Seth Shostak, thank you so much for being with us. Well, it's been my pleasure. <laughs> okay, well, stick around, will you? I'll try. Now, now, one of the instruments on board Curiosity is the Chemical and Mineralogy Instrument, or ChemMin. Now, with ChemMin, it will try to find minerals like clays that would tell us when and for how long there was liquid water on the surface of Mars. Working in tandem with ChemMin is another experiment, the biggest one on Curiosity. It's called SAM, for Sample Analysis at Mars. But first... Kemmin does the reconnaissance. The instrument is for identifying minerals, and minerals are the crystalline materials that make up rocks. And the great thing about minerals is that if you know what minerals are present in a rock, then you know the conditions under which that rock was formed. So you know it was in a lake, it was in a stream, it was deep underground, or whatever. So my instrument, uh, once we get a sample and deliver it to the instrument, will tell us the environment under which these rocks form. So that's kind of what we're looking for. We're looking for habitable zones or zones that were clement environments for life to have either formed or persisted. When you say you're looking for minerals that might tell you something about the conditions, whether they were suitable for life or not, can you, can you name a mineral? They're not top secret minerals, I assume. No, no, not no, not at all. Uh, clays, everybody knows about clays. Uh, they're, they're hydrated phases that form on the Earth's surface and in the presence of water, or at least at low temperatures in the water table. Sulfates, gypsum comes to mind, things like that. Those are formed in aqueous environments, and we kind of know the conditions of formation, and these are places where life could exist four billion years ago. Okay, so you're not actually, this experiment's not looking for what are called organics. No, no. Okay, because organics, I mean, that's kind of a nebulous term. Anything with carbon in it is considered an organic, so... Uh, but but you're looking for minerals that tell you, look, there was standing water between, you know, X million years ago and Y million years ago. Well, that's right. And the other instrument that's inside the body of the rover that's part of the Mars Science Laboratory is called uh, SAM. It just stands for Surface Analysis at Mars. And that's an organic instrument. And uh, if SAM finds an organic in there, then they need to know what is, how did this form? Is this real or, or is it a possible contaminant that we brought from Earth? And one way to tell that is Kemen provides the framework for understanding why that organic material is there. So, so if they found some interesting organic molecules with this other experiment, with the SAM experiment, and that happened to occur during, in the same layer as you find evidence for, I don't know, water... Then, then you get pretty excited. Well, that's exactly right. And there, there's, there's another thing involved, too, and that's preservation. So even though maybe uh, if four billion years ago life was just having a grand old time in the sediment and Gale Crater, we need to preserve that stuff for four billion years to be able to find it and identify it. And so knowing what minerals are there, certain minerals are better at preserving organic signatures than others. And certainly clay minerals are, are top of the list. Now, another story that's been played out now for years about Mars is the possible detection of methane. Uh, <laughs> now, now, methane is produced by lots of different things, including bacteria and volcanoes and cows. And uh, I, I'm told that NASA's gone on record with saying that they haven't found any cows on Mars. <laughs> but but is, is Curiosity going to look for the methane in the atmosphere of Mars? Yes. The SAM instrument uh, it, uh, is able to detect very, very small quantities of methane down to uh, certainly part per million and maybe part per billion. So they are able to do that. Now, here, here's the thing about methane. You can make it abiotically, that is just by natural processes not involving life. You can also make it with life. Certain kinds of, of microbes uh, will produce methane. And, and here's where the mineralogy ties in. If you take certain minerals, like well, olivine is certainly one, and if you bring that up to the surface environment and expose it to water, it will form another mineral called serpentine. And, and in the process of doing that, it releases hydrogen. And that hydrogen can be used as fuel by certain microbes that are called methanogens. And then those methanogens give off methane as part of their, their respiration. So the result is 
you know, if we find a whiff of methane there, then one thing to do is look up and see, well, is this abiotic uh, formed by natural processes, not, not including life, or does it involve life, and how did it happen? That would be quite interesting if you found that it wasn't abiotic, that it was due to microbes under the soil. I mean, that'd be... Uh That'd be headline news. That would be that would be really the 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 answer. That would be lovely. Finally, the answer. Okay. Well, <laughs> look. Now, could curiosity, even in principle, find the Martians if there are any or were any, or can it only find clues? Well, we're really looking for and hoping for clues, and certainly, you know, we have instruments where if we found a fossil fish or a dinosaur bone we would see it. You know, we would image it. You would see a picture of it. There's no reason to believe that anything like that ever occurred on Mars. If, if life did exist on Mars, it probably never got past the stage of single cells. Uh, so we're really honestly looking for signatures of life, for chemical signatures of life. And getting that, although it may not be definitive proof, would be a, a, really, a really big step down the road. Dave Blake, thanks so much for talking with me. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, Seth. A principal investigator for the ChemMen Instrument on the Mars Science Laboratory, David Blake is a senior scientist at NASA Ames Research Center. Now, as we heard earlier, there are many scientists involved in crunching the data that come from Curiosity, including scientists in training. Rachel Harris is a student doing laboratory experiments that will help us best understand the possible detection of organic materials by the SAM instrument on Mars. Seth spoke with her on the night of Curiosity's landing. That instrument is specifically designed to look for minerals that have may have traces of biosignatures such as lipids. <laughs> lipids, lipids. I mean, I got plenty of lipids around my my waist here. I mean, what, what kind of lipids are we talking about? What are what is a lipid? Uh, well, a lipid is essentially a collection of fatty acids, and it's one of the main uh, polymers of life, and uh, perhaps the the most strongest standing in terms of its ability to survive over millennia. Lipids, okay, and but they're only made by biology. If you find a lipid, it was made by something that was alive. You can't can't make a lipid, you know, just in a volcano or something. Uh, as far as we know, no. It's uh, I mean, definitely there are some inorganics that are in the process of creating lipids, but uh, lipids are an example of a trace of life. And, and how does your experiment actually find a lipid? I mean, when I think of a lipid, I think of you know a little piece of fat around the edge of my steak. So um, it's actually kind of a drawn-out experiment. Uh, what we're doing in the lab is we're working with a strain of what are called purple non-sulfur bacteria. And in order to extract a lipid, you have to go through a pretty long process, which I won't go into the details of, but basically you would uh, dry out the sample. First, once you collect a sample, you have to enrich it. So you have a lot of the mat growing, and then you would have to purify All right, well, it's a good thing she's not going uh, into the details here. Yeah, well, of course, her enthusiasm is just a reflection of how excited she is about this work. You, you know, the purpose of this is to use these purple non-sulfur bacteria as sort of a, a test uh, guinea pig, if you will, for finding out if the kind of experiments that Curiosity is doing can reliably detect lipids if there are any in its samples. So this is sort of a proving ground for Curiosity's work. Yes, it is. And as you can hear, it's a little bit. Complicated. All the and like that. You would dry that out and sieve that out. Okay, and uh, the time scale for all this happening, you've, you've got plenty of time, you're still a student? <laughs> yeah, but uh, the time scale is quite variable depending on the, the success of this mission. So, fingers crossed, within my lifetime. <laughs> Rachel Harris, thanks so much for talking with me. Oh, thank you very much, Seth. Rachel Harris is an astrobiologist in training at the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Well, all this discussion about lipids as a marker for extraterrestrial life still has me a little bit confused because when I think of lipids, I think of something that's medically relevant. Right. It sounds like something your doctor talks to you about. Well, is there anyone who might be able to straighten this out? Well, I can think of someone. Just a moment. Hi, this is Dr. Schlisserman. Hi, Dr. Schlisserman. This is Seth Chostak. Hi, Seth. How's the rash? Well, it's fine, but that's actually not what I'm calling about. I have a couple of quick questions to run by you, seeing as you're a medical doctor. Is that okay? Certainly. Okay. Now, uh, what do you think of when I say lipid? When you say lipid, I think of um, I think of sitting down and having a big bacon cheeseburger. Are there lipids in a bacon cheeseburger? Well, it classically, it's something that when people have high cholesterol and problems with lipids that we don't encourage them to eat. I see. But but a lipid itself, is that a fat cell or is it something in the cell? Well, a lipid itself, it's kind of a generic term. And 
when you use the term lipids, people classically think of triglycerides, which are really fats, and cholesterol. So when people go to their doctor and they ask about their lipids, they're asking about basically, you know, what's my good cholesterol, the HDL, and what's my bad cholesterol, the LDL, and uh, what are my triglycerides. So if you had to hunt for lipids, where would you hunt for them? I'd, I'd take a sample of your blood. My blood. <laughs> well, well, then, last time you saw me, uh, how was my lipid count? Well, I can violate every HIPAA law right now and give it out, but I don't have your record sitting in front of me, (laughs) (laughs) which is probably fortunate for you. Dr. Schlissemann, did you know they were looking for lipids on Mars? I had no idea. That sounds very interesting to me. (laughs) Yes, but I don't think that they're going to be uh, putting Mars on any sort of medication. (laughs) Any sort of lipid-lowering diet. (laughs) Dr. Schlissemann. (laughs) Yes. Dr. Schlissman, uh, thanks very much. You're welcome. All right, bye-bye. Bye, Seth. Stuart Schlissman is a physician in Northern California, and he was helpful, but it, it still seems that there are lipids, and then again, there are lipids. You know what? I think we should go back to David Blake and see if he can help us sort this out. Oh, hey, Dave, a uh, quick follow-up. Uh, you can hear that there's some confusion about lipids among us here. Maybe you can help clear up the mystery. Curiosity is looking for lipids on Mars, apparently, but not the kind of lipids that I get tested for at my doctor's. Well, yeah, I can try to give you an answer to that one. Yeah, they they are the the kinds that maybe a microbial doctor would check his microbial patients for. And these are the things that make up cell walls and things like that. And they're the most persistent of biosignatures, one of the most persistent of biosignatures. And so if anything is there, it would be some remnant of lipids. And, and these lipids could be identified with this SAM instrument that's doing essentially mass spectroscopy or looking at the mass of the molecules as they're read by the machine. Okay. So th- these would be lipids produced by ancient life, not, you know, the kind that uh, I would get by snacking on a bacon cheeseburger. That's right. And so one of the first things that had to happen with early cells is they have to have a cell membrane or a cell volume where stuff they need to live is inside and stuff that that they want to exclude is outside. So they make this little cell and the cell wall is made of things that kind of self-assemble and they contain some of these long chain uh, hydrocarbons or lipids that essentially keep some things in and some things out. All right. Thank you very much, David. Sure. Thanks again to David Blake, senior scientist at NASA and principal investigator for ChemMen. Next, what if we find life on Mars, but we can't to be sure that we can distinguish it from our own terrestrial life? Also, how can you sign up for a seat on a spaceship to the red planet? The catch? It's a one-way trip. That's Submartian Curiosity on Big Picture Science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we have a rover on Mars. Now we've heard where it's landed and what its mission is. And while Curiosity is hunting for the organics that make up life, it raises the question of what would happen if one day we do find life on Mars. Well, besides pandemonium, how could we be sure that this life was not a transplant, that we are not related to it? I mean, asteroids hit Earth and they hit Mars and they cause chunks of rock to fly off into space, resulting in some rocks ending up on Mars and some ending up on Earth and vice versa. So could Earth life be simply the result of contamination by Martian life? It raises what's called the second genesis question. Felisa Wolf-Simon is a NASA astrobiology research fellow at the Lawrence Berkeley National Labs. Well, the second genesis has to do with the idea that all life on Earth today has a common origin. So everything, trees, mosquitoes, elephants, humans, down to mice, bacteria, everything on Earth today comes from the same origin. 
And so one of the questions we all have is, is that unique in the universe? Did it only happen once and only on Earth? Or could it be elsewhere in the universe? And then would it have arisen from a completely second or different origin? So when we look for life on Mars, presumably it's, it's Martian, right? Isn't that a second genesis? Well, it's an interesting idea. We know that rocks from Mars and rocks from Earth have been exchanging for billions of years. So could a rock from Earth gone to Mars and seeded Mars with Earth-like life? Or could have a rock from Mars come to Earth and given Earth Mars-like life that we think of as Earth-like life? It's a good question, and we don't know that answer. So going to Mars, we'll at least start beginning to get information to answer that sort of question. Now, Curiosity isn't going to be able to answer that question, right? It's just looking for uh, life's building blocks, whatever genesis they are. That's right. So Curiosity is really opening the door to understanding, could life have ever been on Mars? Was it ever ever in a place that was habitable? Does it have the kinds of compounds that life needs? Okay, but let's step forward a little bit. I mean, you know, let's look 10, 20 years down the pike, right? Uh, or uh, maybe less. And, and we bring a rock back from Mars, we take it into the lab, we open it up, and we see some frozen bacteria, you know, bacteria fossils. Would we be able to know whether it was related to us or not? That's a very hard question. And while seemingly simple, is that bacteria in a Mars rock related to our life? It seems like a very simple question. It might be very difficult. However, we have these clues in life today. So on Earth, all life uses a type of DNA or nucleic acids for its, let's say, information technology. So one of the first things we might look for in that bacteria is does it use DNA as its information technology, as all of its instructions? Another thing on Earth is we use proteins as our molecular machines. So we might look in that bacteria and say, is it using proteins and made of amino acids as machines to make life work? And lipids, so lipids is like fat. So this separates you from everything else. And this is forms the cell membrane. Is that bacteria use the same sort of lipid or fat that we use? And so this is the way we can go about start asking those questions. How similar, how, what is the form and function of how that life works compared to how our life works? I think a lot of people just assume that if we found life on Mars, it would have DNA. But is there any real reason why it must have DNA just to be alive? I mean, could it be something XNA, QNA? I, absolutely. I think it's an interesting question to see. If you abstract the problem for a second, so all life on Earth must have three things, we think for argument's sake. First is information technology. We use things like DNA and genes. The second would be molecular machines or girders. So this is the, the proteins that do the work of the cell. And the third thing is a separation. This is like lipids or fat that separates you from everything else. And so those, if we abstract that, those are the three things that life needs. There might not be any reason to assume that life elsewhere in the universe would have to use the specific things like DNA and RNA that we use. Maybe there's a whole new type of molecule that can hold information and transmit that information to other things. Felicia, you're a biologist. You understand life. I get a question asked me all the time, do you think there ever really was life on Mars? And of course, I'm an astronomer, so I can't really answer that question. Not that that stops me. When people ask you that question, what do you say? I say, how could there not have been life on Mars? Life is this amazing electric thing on Earth, and it's such an unusual event that may have occurred. Why not happen more than once? If we have it once, why not happen twice? Why not happen three times? I think what will be really interesting is understanding that. You know, in thinking about being a biologist, I think if you asked somebody, a five, 10-year-old, 20 years ago, if there was life on Mars, they may have said no. I have yet to find a kid who thinks that that's the case. Almost every kid I talk to about going into science and being a scientist says, well, of course there's life on Mars. And it's just a matter of we need to understand the data that would either support or, or not support that. So I'd say, why not life on Mars? And finding life on Mars would give us a deeper and more complete sense of what it means to be alive on Earth. Felicia Wolf-Simon, thanks so much for uh, talking with me. Thank you, Seth, anytime. If you're roaming the halls of Lawrence Berkeley Labs, you might spot Elisa Wolf-Simon. She's a NASA astrobiology fellow there. Well, whether we have relatives on the red planet today or not, we will. I am Bas Lonsorp. I'm the founder of Mars One. Mars One will establish human settlement on Mars in 2023. Human life on Mars. In that year, the first group of four humans will land on Mars. Every two years after that, another group will join the settlement. 
Bast Landstorp is an entrepreneur. Mars One is his company designed to colonize Mars. He's pitched it as a spectacular media event, and he says he'll pay for the venture through monies earned from the, well, the mother of all reality shows, never mind Big Brother or Jersey Shore. This would be a show about the colonists' lives on Mars that would follow the astronauts as they traveled to the Red Planet and built a new life there permanently. Doing a one-way mission is actually what makes it possible with current technology, while sending humans back to Earth is a lot more complex than uh, keeping humans alive on Mars. Uh, And this settlement will support them for the rest of their lives, and every two years, new crews and new equipment will be sent to Mars, uh, such that there is a growing community of humans on Mars, so they won't be alone. They will be living in a small village on Mars. Now, uh, the Curiosity lander, NASA's lander, made it successfully onto the surface of Mars. Everybody's excited about that, and everybody recognizes that robots can go to Mars. They can land. They can do their thing. So don't you get the question frequently that, you know, why send humans? I mean, that's, that's dangerous, and it's expensive. Yeah, it's dangerous, and it's, it's expensive, but it's also a lot more interesting than rovers. The, the Curiosity rover, a lot of people have watched the landing and a lot of people will watch the first weeks, but uh, people will stop being interested. Of course, the, the technical people will, will stay interested because of the science that's happening. But the, what we are uh, showing the world is how humans explore Mars. And it will be like uh, Columbus bringing a video recorder with him when he, uh, when he sailed west. That's what will interest people. It's the human aspect. Okay, well, let's say that you go ahead with this, and the, you know the first colonists arrive. How, how many will go in the first uh, in the first ship? Uh, four people will go in uh, 2023, and every two years we're sending four more people. Well, how how do you determine who's going to get into the rocket? Well, we don't have an application on our uh, on our website yet. We're not yet accepting applications, but already hundreds of people are applying. But the actual uh, application will start in, uh, in 6 to, to 12 months. And uh, the first thing we'll do is we'll have a team of experts who will determine who is suitable and who is not. And from these suitable people, we will ask the audience to decide who they would like to go to Mars. The audience. So, so you think that people are going to find it endlessly interesting to find out what's going on on Mars this week, how the colonists are doing. Exactly, yes. This is what uh, we've discussed this with many uh, media experts. And actually, uh, the, the person that gave me this idea is uh, Paul Romer, the inventor of uh, Big Brother, the television show. And yes, this is exactly the, the point. People will be interested to see how humans are doing on Mars, not uh, how they plant a flag or how they put the first footstep on the soil. They will be interested to see how the humans live, what happens when the, first, when the second group joins the first group. And what happens if there is a conflict? How do they solve these, uh, these conflicts? What, what about hardware, boss? Uh, you, you're not in the rocket business yourself. Where are you going to get the, you know, the hardware to put them there on the red planet? Now, uh, Mars One is absolutely not an aerospace company. Uh, we are not going to build a single component ourselves. All the, all the components that we need can be bought from uh, suppliers. And we've, we've identified those suppliers. Uh, they're, they're big aerospace companies who have done this before in the U.S. or have done similar things before uh, from the U.S., from Canada, and from Europe. And we've, we've visited them and we've told them what components we need from them. And they agree with us that this is a feasible plan. I, I take it that it's considerably easier for these companies given that you only need the one-way ride. Yes, especially uh, landing things on Mars for a one-way mission is a lot easier than uh, landing things for a return trip because you would have to land a very large rocket that can lift humans off the surface of Mars. And we don't need uh, so much energy on Mars because we don't need to produce the propellant for the return trip such that we don't need a nuclear reactor and a Mars nuclear reactor just doesn't exist yet and it will take over a decade to develop just this component. One other aspect here. I hear that this project is occasionally referred to as a suicide mission as opposed to a one-way mission. I mean, if, if, if I go into an audience giving a lecture about something related to space and I said, how many of you in the audience would accept a one-way ticket to Mars? There are always people in the audience that would do that. So do you have any problem with this being called a suicide mission? 
Well, I don't have a problem with it being called a suicide mission, but I totally disagree with that it is a suicide mission. For people who are not interested in going to Mars, it's often a nightmare to be sent on a one-way mission to Mars. And these people will consider it a suicide mission because it would be the end of their life, their life being an interesting life on Earth. But for people whose dream it is to go to Mars, it is the opposite. It's the start of their life. This is what they've been dreaming of all their life, and they're finally making their dream come true. So for some people, it, it would be a suicide mission, and those people are not going to Mars. But for some people, this is really their big dream. Are, are you going to go yourself, boss? Do you plan to go? Uh, well, originally, uh, it was my idea. When I, when I started this idea 15 years ago, it was my idea that, that I would go, obviously, because otherwise I don't think anyone would uh, spend so much time on this. But uh, the more I've learned and the older I grew, I've, I, it's, I'm a little bit older and wiser now, I realized that I would really like to go at some point in the future, but uh, certainly not in one of those first uh, groups, because it's just really not something that I am uh, psychologically uh, fit for. Bas Lonsdorp, thanks so very much for talking with me. Thank you very much, Seth. It was a pleasure to be on the show. Bas Lansdorp is the founder of Mars One. Well, it's an audacious scheme, and it's worth noting that Mars One doesn't provide the technical details of just how this plan will be executed. However, Bas Lansdorp is not the first to suggest a manned mission to the Red Planet. For a long time, people have talked about sending humans to Mars. Final thoughts on this from curiosity scientist David Blake. Well, I think the idea is pretty cool. I think it's it's way, way down the pike. If you consider what it took, we sent basically a metric ton, about something like 2,000 pounds of machinery to the surface of Mars. And if you look at the launch pad at Cape Canaveral, you'll see what it took to make that happen. But uh, ultimately, ultimately, all these missions point to a future for humankind on the red planet. Yeah. If, if you look at the whole solar system, you know, right now we don't have faster than light drive. We can't go warp nine. So we're by my point of view, unfortunately, we're stuck in our solar system for probably my lifetime. If you want to go somewhere in the solar system, the only other place where we could have a normal life with technology would be Mars. All right. Well, I'll, I'll invest in real estate. <laughs> Start with Gale Crater. Molly, would you consider volunteering to be a colonist on Mars? Absolutely not, no. You you don't want to be a planetary pilgrim. No, I don't. I'm very happy here on Earth. Thanks to our larger-than-life but decidedly Earth-bound production staff, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, and thanks also to our listeners. You've been listening to A Martian Curiosity, and you can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook and become a fan of the program? Become a alluvial fan of the program, if you wish. You can leave your comments there as well. If you're a podcast listener but prefer over-the-air radio because, after all, that transmission might reach Mars, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. Okay, I'm going to see if I can open the Ziploc bag with the gloves off. Ready? Yeah. And it's open. Huh. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.